because I am here and the big eye is on you. The neurons are working and the ganglia is operating well. Gotta get this thing here working too. All of a sudden we've got that hum back again. Oh well. I'm telling you. This is the studio that's only used for the third rate shows, and I've got it. It's got a 10 dB hum level on it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, don't worry. The sound you'll hear in the background, friends, the steady swishing sound you'll hear, and the thumping sound is the, uh, the cleaning department here. Just uh, quietly working away on the floors and banging on the ceiling. It only works in the studio like that, so don't worry. It gives you a sense of light, though. Mm -hmm. I must concede that. It's a sense of realism. Would you please give me a little salute there? Any kind, anything you put on there, George. Right. That's all right. That's good. That's very good. That's good. Somewhere I hear the bells ringing. Yes, sir. Uh, whistles are blowing. It's time for all of us to get marching. Come on, pick up your gut there, Fred. Pull in your... Pulling your kidney. Let's go. We're marching forward. Never upward and onward goes man. Upward and onward we shall go. here, for those of you who are interested in what's happening in the existence that you're living. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just can't, uh, they, they can't uh, believe the uh, senses that they've been given, you know, your eyes and your feet and all that stuff. They have to be told by Walter Cronkite that uh, you're alive, you're alive, friend, you're still here. That's right, turn the gain up and you'll be even more here. That's right, turn the volume up. Well, I got a note here from a girl, girl says, uh, Shepard, I'm reading this great book called Harriet the Spy. It's uh, 13. Not not Harriet, uh, the, the girl who was reading the book called Harriet the Spy. And uh, she says, a great book, fantastic book. About the, now, do you, have you ever read the book? you know about the book? You don't know. Well, <laughs> Harriet the Spy is about a kid spy. Now... If you don't mind, since, uh, you know, it's the end of the week and all that, I'm going to have to get right down to the basic nitty-gritty here. We've, we've, we've uh, you know, we flubbed away another week. You haven't done a damn thing. 
Another week of your life has dribbled away, uh, just, you know, squirted between your fingers, and uh, you spend all your time squeezing toothpaste tubes and standing in line for the cleaning. And, I mean, important stuff like that that helps you through the existence. And here it is, another week has gone by. You haven't done anything, right? Well, at last you've come to the place where it's all going to happen. By the way, we're going to give you a, a uh, before we leave here, uh, this is an assignment. This is a direct assignment. This will appear on the exam. That uh, They're playing my television show again here in uh, New York tomorrow night, Channel 13 at 7 o'clock. It's an assignment. You will watch it, and uh, you will be questioned on it later in this semester. So be sure to take notes. That's tomorrow night at 7 on Channel 13 here in town. Now, we're, if you're out of town, uh, you're out of town. And all we can say is that you have our sympathy. I mean, you know, being out of town, living way out there in the sticks like you do. But uh, <laughs> not everybody can be in a big time, and you'll have to accept that. So uh, while we're on the subject of uh, Harriet the Spy, I, I got thinking about that, you know, the chicks as I'm reading Harriet the Spy. And I not only read, you know, that letter, the same day I got the letter, which was a couple of days ago, I turned on the television at late night TV. You know, after all the talk shows are done and the real stuff starts coming on, and, uh, you know, the real stuff, they get down to where it really is. And uh, I'm turning around the dials. I'm thumping away there, you know, each dial, each each channel. And I'm hit by the fact that there are three spy movies on simultaneously. And th th thinking about that scene, and of course, the, half of the spies are played by the same people. There's a certain type of person that plays in spy movies all the time. So I'm watching the spy. That's a whole category, you know, of movies. We have the Western movie. We have the war movie. Uh, we have the... Uh, the horror movie, and of course the spy movie. And the spy movie is getting more and more popular, uh, almost by you know, almost by logarithmic arrangement. There, it's like it's not just doubling; it's quadrupling every day. There's a new spy movie. So, I've got to think about that, you know. And I, I think one of the basic drives that exists within all of us. Would you please bring me a little uh, contemplative music, please? Excuse me while I examine my navel here. <laughs> George is still there, all right? Hey, George, it's a trendy little label. There we go. And so together we float on the placid stream of time. And so together we share this this falling bough, this this drying leaf, this bursting pod of life. Fecund and rich with promise as we drift, as we eternally drift, the wind blows us hither and yon. The winds of time, the winds of now, the winds of change. The old man stands on the bridge, watching the water as it moves endlessly out to sea. The frog croaks. And a quarter moon hangs like a tiny scimitar in the eastern sky. <laughs> That's kind of nice, isn't it? That's how it is. Take me in. And why are you listening to me? Well, it's part of the spy syndrome. You wish to, in safety... In absolute 
security to spy upon the workings of my mind and my soul. Had you ever thought of showbiz as part of the spying syndrome? The voyeurism complex, we call it, in the trade. It's the voyeuristic complex, actually, to be more accurate. And what is the voyeurism that we have? The desire to constantly peek at others. Driven by insensate urges to peer through the latticework curtain of the prohibition of the private man. <laughs> That's kind of good, too, isn't it? By George, it is, certainly. And so you sit, squatting, at $12 and a half a ticket in a Broadway theater to watch somebody argue with his wife for three acts. And then call it art. The psychologists have another word for it. It's called legitimate voyeurism. Now, what does legitimate mean? It means society's decided this kind of voyeurism's okay. <laughs> Creeping up and looking into your neighbor's bedroom window is not legitimate voyeurism, although the action may be even more interesting. And the price you pay is why it will be higher if you, you know, if the law puts the whammy on you. A little bit more than $12 a seat. Although we may eventually in our society come to that, where people will put little grandstands outside of their houses for people to come and watch them. You know, and charge amusement tax and the whole bit. I can just see them taking out an ad in the mainline Times. Big Ed and Myrtle are home from their vacation. Watch the action tonight at 8. <laughs> Oh, he's singing it from the soul. Thank you, thank you. That's very good. You keep that in abeyance there, because I'm going to use that. That's kind of good. The voyeurism. Now, now that uh, I, you know, reading about Harriet the Spy there. And uh, the voyeuristic tendency that we all have. Earn big money. Learn to be a sleuth. I, uh, at, the, at the age of nine, I answered such an ad. And you've probably seen the ads from time to time in the pulp magazines. Earn big money in police work. Learn uh, fingerprinting techniques and all that stuff. Send in a coupon. Be operative X. Earn big dough as a private eye. Well, now the term, almost all. What, what do you think that the mystery novels are about. They're about voyeurism. And a private eye is always an exciting character because he's paid to do it. It's like a pro in any field. He's uh, an interesting thing. You know, so a pro baseball player is fascinating to the fans because he's paid to play. Most of us uh, have to take time off to play, but he's paid to play. And uh, that's why actors are exciting to most people because he... <laughs> He is paid, and in fact is highly applauded and critically uh, dissected for pretending that he's making a scene with somebody in the second reel with all the Klieg lights on and with uh, seven makeup men standing on the uh, periphery of the light where they rush in and spray passion juice on, uh, on uh, Elizabeth Taylor 
And so, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very exciting to realize some people are... Pay, and we, we've all agreed, see, we, we agree that it's okay. That's what's called uh, uh, that's societal agreement. And these, by the way, these phrases will all be asked you later in the examination. So societal agreement means we have agreed that it's okay that if we go and watch a movie of, uh, let's say, pornographic dimensions, uh, we will be not only applauded by the rest of our peers, but we will have, a, have proved that we are more interested in art than the rest of our peers. <laughs> well, that's societal agreement. Now, if you did the same thing, you know, if you hung around somebody's house, you kept peeking in through the privet edges, well, that would be beyond the pale. Simply not done. Now, uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I've, uh, all I'm doing here is, of course, relating, you have to relate uh, ultimately to yourself, right, gang? You have to, the, the, the only way you'll know about mankind is uh, know thyself, correct? Correct. Well, I, I mean, you say that. I mean, I saw it on the bottom of the calendar once, but uh, I'm not so sure it's true, but uh, it's said continually, know, uh, know thyself, they say. And how do you know yourself? Want me to introduce you there? Fred, that's Fred. See him sitting over in the corner? He's kind of a nice guy. Get to know him. It's all right. A little sneaky around the edges, but uh, don't worry about it. And he's, uh, you're sneaky, too, so uh, it'll cancel out, ultimately. Your rottenness will cancel out his decadence. But uh, that's, you know, you get, to, you get deeply involved in that kind of thing. You wind up doing what they call eating lotus. Now, what is eating lo- lotus? Lotus... Uh, to most of you, probably is a geometric tone. What, what is the, what? What does lotus mean? Is a lotus the shortest? This? No, it's a, it's a point that moves on a straight line between x and y. That's the lotus. And it's also the name of an English car, but that's beyond the discussion at this point. Then that gets very metaphysical. Why they call it the lotus? Now there's another kind of lotus. Uh, the kind you eat. And I don't know, what is a lotus eater? Is he a guy that sits down and has a, you know, a nice dish of creamed lotus bulbs? Uh, or do you prefer yours French fried with a little garlic on them? Maybe a little Parmesan cheese? How do you like your lotus? <laughs> How long has it been you've had a nice dish of humble pie? Sit down there and eat crow. I know a place in, the, in Tallahassee where you can order yourself up some nice crow, barbecued nicely, eating crow. If that reminds me, this is W.O.R., New York. Hi, George. It certainly is. Now, we can't deny that. That is one point of reality upon which we can agree. Although there is a concept whether or not this is actually true or whether it's... Oh, that gets kind of sickeningly uh, metaphysical. And by the way, speaking of the metaphysics, uh, part of uh, the reality of our time, I think the one reason why most people relate to commercials is because commercials transcend all the metaphysics and tell you what to do when you smell bad. Right? <laughs> I mean, it gets right down to the premise that man is, is, is actually a visceral creature that has visceral fears. Uh, he doesn't want to leave a spore. Have you ever thought of that? That, that the reason that we're, we're, we're worried... Are you, how many commercials today deal with uh, various uh, bodily odors of one kind or another? Why is man so afraid of this? Well, your average uh, doxman does not uh, worry about being gamey. In fact, uh, uh, your average Airedale prides himself on his gaminess, judging from what I know of Airedales. You've noticed this? Well, man is afraid of leaving a spore. What is it, a spore? A spore. Well, I'd suggest you look that up. That's S-P-O-O-R, spore, the trail. (laughs) You have been here. 
You know, you know, you don't want to, you don't want people to open the door of this room and come in and they, Clarence has been here. <laughs> oh, well, all right, we've got a commercial here. If uh, let's see, uh, if you're one of the mature types, you ought to know more about, according to this commercial, a country place. It's called Kaufman and Broad's Adult Community in Lakewood, New Jersey. Now you know there's a long fed of metaphysical argument as to whether adulthood involves just a chronological development or whether it involves medic mental development. And I don't know whether they uh, they give you a test out there to find out whether you're truly mature. <laughs> but it's called an adult community. Anyway, it differs from so many other adult communities, according to the spot here, because it resembles the old neighborhood. Now I don't know about your old neighborhood. Uh, you can, uh, <laughs> if it does, it could be exciting. But anyway, it resembles the old neighborhood where people knew each other and helped each other, friendly, and so forth. So you ought to find out about it if you're interested in such an adult community. It's in Lakewood, New Jersey. It's near the country club there. They have a community hall, a swimming pool, a putting green, and all kinds of groovy stuff. So to visit a country place, take the Garden State Parkway to exit 91 or take Route 9 south to Lakewood and follow the signs. Big signs of Puentes. Only adults go that way. All the other, the grasshopper types, go the other direction. <laughs> you are listening to the music of James Lass on Polydor Records. This is Earl Dowd of Banana Paradise, and I'm especially pleased to have an opportunity to acquaint you with the talents of one of the world's great composers and musicians, James Lass. His special style is one of many fans throughout the world, and now we in America will be able to dig firsthand his imaginative and truly beautiful sound. Behind me, you are hearing a composite of three tunes from James' last album. The tunes are The Wedding Song, Love Must Be the Reason, and It's Going to Take Some Time. The album title, Love Must Be the Reason. The artist, James Last, on Polydor Records. Yeah, it's available at all King Carroll record shops at a sale price of three seventy-seven. Yes, sir, for records four ninety-nine for tapes. King Carroll, one eleven West Forty-second Street. And by the way, they'll mail free anywhere in the U.S. That's one eleven West Forty-second Street, New York one zero zero three six. Then check or money order. Ask for free catalog. That's King Carroll for James Last. I have to tell you a story, if you don't mind. I thinking about that spy voyeurism thing, that I have long been a victim of it. Uh, no question about it. Uh, everybody, uh, every, you know, everybody secretly wants to peer into things. Now, some do and some don't. Some actually give in to the, to the urge and others don't. But uh, I was about nine, see, and, and uh, when I first discovered that this is not, uh, this is not a thing that is uh, actually done, in the, I, I think that's one of the things that uh, separates the men from the boys is that the men have agreed to live by the rules. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. They've agreed to do this. Now, the boys, metaphysically speaking, the kid types, don't know the rules yet. So they uh, they, they just do all this stuff. Well, at the age of nine, see, I saw this ad. It says, uh, it says um, learn the fingerprinting. And it says a complete detective outfit is available, including a magnifying glass, a complete set of fingerprint tools, including dusting powder, <laughs> At the, including a book on how to read fingerprints and how to trap criminals and how to observe, uh, you know, the bad stuff that's going on in your neighborhood. It could save countless uh, amounts of police work in your area 
and uh, send this uh, coupon in, and you'll be uh, you'll be well on your way to a career. Well, I you know I I my life savings at the time was so dollar seventy six something like that that uh, I used to get a dollar on every birthday from my Uncle Tom, and I had saved these dollars, you know, and I'd squander it once in a while on stuff like Baby Ruth bars and false noses and stuff that I needed. Uh, yes, I remember buying myself one of these plastic false noses with the glasses that <laughs> so I'd sit on the top of it, and, a, and I, had a, I had a wig, a, a red-headed wig, which uh, I had bought, and uh, so I was pretty well equipped to begin police work. So I sent in the coupon. And where was the coupon? Well, the coupon appeared in Boy's Life. Now, I don't know whether you've ever read Boy's Life, that almost all of us have at one time or another. It was this guy named Dan Beard who was always in Boy's Life. Do you remember that? You ever hear the name, Dan Beard? Well, Dan Beard, it was a picture of Dan Beard at the top of the column, and he had this giant beard. He really had a beard. It was Dan Beard. He had a beard. It says, uh, Dan Beard. Uh, it tells you how to, <laughs> how to tell which side is north. You know, if you're lost in the woods, he always used to have these tips on stuff like that if you're lost in the woods, that uh, you should look on the north. You'll notice that the moss grows on the north side of trees. This is what Dan Beard said. And uh, I'm, I'm living, of course, on the south side of Chicago. And it was, you, could, you could tell which side was north, actually, because all the street signs said, uh, you know, north, south, and that stuff. So I, I never really got lost often uh, which way was north and which was south. But I was fascinated by the columns, see, reading, because... Because he says, when you're out in the wilderness and you're lost, and you have to know which way is north. Now I don't know what good no- knowing where north is is going to help you if you're in the wilderness. But nevertheless, at that time I didn't know. Now I know, of course, if I know where north is, I'm always safe. Uh, <laughs> kind of makes you feel secure to know that. In fact, uh, for a long time I had a bottle cap that had a compass in it, and uh, once in a while when I'd get, uh, I'd sit. You know, I'd in the desert school or a place like that, and I get my head would start going, and I'd get confused. You know how times when you feel things are getting out out of hand, and you can't control them. I take out my bottle cap opener there with the with the compass in it, and I'd hold it up, and it would point to north. Then I'd feel a little secure. At least I knew where north was. I may not know what the hell the roar of the roses was about, but I knew where the north pole was, at least in that general direction. And then it was later that I found out that the, that the, I always thought it pointed at the North Pole. You know, I suppose a lot of you still think that. Forget it, it does not. When you have that compass and it points north, it does not point to the North Pole, it points to a thing called magnetic north, which ain't anywhere near the North Pole. So if you figure you're going to follow that compass and get to the North Pole, you're wrong again. You'll get to someplace up in Canada. Actually, it's over on the left side of Canada. It's not even on the right side of Canada. It's on the left side by a lot of lakes and swamps. And uh, so, you know, that doesn't help you much. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the myth was very strong when I was a kid that if you knew where north was, you're, you know, you're pretty safe. So Dan Beard said the following. If, uh, if you're lost in the wilderness and uh, you don't know where you are and you're in, in danger because of the various dangers that you encounter in the wilderness, various type of wild beasts and stuff, and pitfalls. And by the way, I was told that when I came to New York, I should watch out for pitfalls. And you know that I, ever since I've been here, I've been looking for them. I have not found a pitfall that I would call exciting in some time. I, you know. So uh, there I am, sitting there reading Dan Beard. And he said the following, for those of you who would like to know where north is, that the moss, the green moss, grows on the north side of trees. Well, a couple of days later, I'm at the scout meeting, and I mentioned that. I brought that up. 
Yeah, now Mr. Gordon, our scoutmaster, says, uh, who said that? And I said, uh, Mr. Beard, Dan Beard, said it in Boy's Life. He said, well, it's true. And he says, yes, that's correct. Uh, no, moss does grow on the north side of trees. At which point, uh, uh, immediate idea hit us. Uh, I, I was a member of the Moose Patrol in 241, and uh, our big uh, camporee, we had a thing called a camporee, which was held uh, every couple of weeks. We'd have a camporee. We held it back at a Sherwin-Williams paint sign over on 173rd Street, and uh, <laughs> that's actually where we held it. <laughs> well, it was, it was the wilderness. It was the only vacant lot for miles around that was back at a Sherwin-Williams paint sign. And, uh, that was <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the truth. I, I don't want to bet the news, friends. I only report it here. So, so uh, <laughs> it, it hit our, our patrol leader, a fearless patrol leader named Schwartz. Uh, it hit him that, that what we ought to do is paint moss on the north side of all the fire plugs so that we would always know where north is. And so we did. We went out, we went to Woolworth, and we got this green paint. It was called, actually, you can buy moss green paint, you know, at Woolworth. You'll find it there. You can get it either in the matte finish or the what they call the uh, the uh, sheen finish, which is kind of nice. It has a glossy finish to it. So we decided matte finish would be closer to real moss. So we painted, we painted the moss on the side of all the uh, fire plugs all around the Sherwin-Williams paint sign so we could always know which side was north. Well, it gave us a certain sense of security. And uh, I'm, I'm reading this thing and uh, thinking about it and uh, mulling it all over, you know, and, and uh, way down very deep in the middle of all the ads in the back of Boy's Lot, there was this ad. And a little did I realize that it was going to cause a disquieting element to enter my life, which uh, certainly uh, most of us uh, attempt to avoid. Do we not, right? Well, not always. In fact, many of us seek out disquieting elements. Actively. <laughs> I mean, which winds up often in fist fights and yelling and guys shoving each other off bar stools and that kind of stuff. But uh, we don't want to get into that. That's beyond the scope. Now, uh, I sent in the coupon. And it cost me. Uh, by the way, why is it people are always interested in what things cost? Have you noticed the new gauche thing that is growing? Uh, may I get on the record here, please? Uh, give me a little echo chamber. No, no, a little echo chamber. Just a little bit. Hello? Hello? Hello, one, two, three, four. I'm about to make an official announcement. Thank you. Very good. I uh, just uh, wanted you to turn your radio up so that you know that uh, Shepard is about to make an official announcement. And uh, he has observed that there is a growing trend among the clods of our time, and there are plenty, among the slobberoonies, the slobus americanus vulgaris, among the slobs, of leaving the price list and the price, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the price tag on their cars. Have you seen that? Well, you know that there is a federal law that requires that uh, that there's this price list that's put on the window of every car before it's in. It says uh, seat belts, $722. Uh, moving top with rollers, $974. Heater, $922. Knob four heaters, $74. You've seen those things? Well, there's a law that says you've got to have that on, see, when the car is sold. But the thing about the slob is, he leaves it on his car now. So when he drives, he parks in, everyone can see that he bought the deluxe model that says $374,000 just for the seat belts alone. And he keeps it up there. Have you seen that? Oh, yes, that's a growing... You have, Jerry, haven't you? Now, that, uh, I think, is one of the... Uh, <laughs> one, of the one of the really slob... Uh, one of the really slob trends of our time. How many of you right now are doing that? Oh, what a slob you've turned out to be. 
Now, can you imagine if, if, if that is carried into other areas? Yeah, of course. You know, you leave all the tags on your sport jacket. And uh, so when you're sitting there, you know, you're eating away at the, at the, at the chock full of nuts, you know, you're having your chocolate brownie and your orange drink and all that stuff, knocking down a hot dog, there's a tag that sticks up. It says 7450, made of nylon, dynel, and uh, non, uh, non-fading fabrics, 100% ding-dong. It hangs out there. <laughs> and now, nobody would think of doing that. Or, let us put it this way, it has not yet come to that. But uh, it is true that the, that the that price has become a very important part of people's lives. And, uh, in fact, the other day I was driving a car. I was, I was doing a thing for car and driver, and I was driving this big Excalibur. Have you seen those fantastic Excalibur? Tremendous thing. Well, I would stop at a stoplight, and uh, the, invariably, I'd stop at a stoplight. Some slob would drive up next to me, this great big Excalibur. It's got the big pipes coming out of the hood and all that, you know, and blah, 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 it's roaring. He would stop and he'd say, hey, Mac! And I'd say, yes. Hey, Mac, how much does that cost, huh? How much does it cost? Well, I got into the habit of saying uh, $250,000. I said, 250000 uh, that's uh, less tax. Uh, oh, boy. Now, he didn't ask me whether it was good or bad, what it was. He did not comment whether it was beautiful or ugly. He wanted to know how much it cost. That was the prime, <laughs> that was the prime question. So, uh, you know, you learn as you go. So I will tell you honestly that this detective kit cost me 97 cents. That included postage. Now, uh, I, the reason I remember the 97 cents is uh, later developments made it imperative that I remember it. However, I sent in, I sent in the money order. I had to go out and get money. You ever, ever bought a money order? Well, I used to buy these. It's in check or money order. Well, it's nine. I didn't have much of a checking account. And, uh, so I would trot down to the post office buy a money order, <laughs> which I did. 97 cents, sent it off, and it was to the Detective Kit Corporation of America of Kansas City, Kansas. Well, a couple of months later, I get this thing back. And, I, and have you ever, have you ever, have you ever actually done any real police work? Well, I mean, the real thing. Well, uh, <laughs> one of my prized possessions at the age of nine was this kit, and it came. And this is not—I I, I hasten to assure you—this has nothing to do with nostalgia. Shepard must make another announcement. Please, Ed, give me a little announcement. Hello? Uh, official announcement coming on right now. Shepard is not talking about the old days. He does not wish you to send him a letter about what you did when you were a kid. He does not wish you to write a note to him and saying, gee, do you remember Mary Jane's and Bubblegum? Shepard does remember Mary Jane's. He hated them at the time and still does not like them. Shepard does remember Bubblegum. He is chewing it right now. So uh, <laughs> this is not nostalgia. Shepard is talking about a syndrome, a, 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 a thing which once it gets you by, uh, let us put it this way, your basic entrails, you will continue to be involved. There's no way of escaping it. You're curious? What happens? Well, voyeurism leads only to more voyeurism. I know, you know, I just want to throw that out so you think about it. <laughs> I've thought about it. So I got this kit. Now, in the kit, great kit, in the kit was a 
was a, a, a plastic... It looked... Well, actually, it, uh, looking back on it now, it looked like a little plastic Noxema jar. That's what it looked like. And it had a white top on it, and on the top of this white top was the label which said, Fingerprint Dusting Powder. Now, fingerprint dusting powder looks a little bit like ground charcoal. Have you ever seen it, Jerry? Ever? Now, most of you have had your fingerprints taken at one time or another. Have you, Jerry? Do you recall having your fingerprints taken? Once. How about you? Never? Oh, that's hard to believe. Now, think back on it. Now, come on. Really think about it. Now, I don't mean your fingerprints taken like, uh, you know, if they put the whammy on you. Some guy put the arm on you. I mean, fingerprints like uh, when you register for the draft. Yeah, they did. They took it. <laughs> All right. That's forever on file, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and so when, you, when, you, when, when your fingerprint is taken, they use a thing that looks a little bit like an ink pad. You know, you put your fingers on the ink pad there, and the guy rolls your thumb over the paper, all that stuff. Well, that's not the same thing as taking fingerprints from objects that are used. Now, that stuff that is, that is used in that process is called fingerprint powder, logically. And it comes in a jar, and it looks like ground-up, very fine carbon dust. It's kind of like flour. It's extremely fine. And it's black. And, man, I'm telling you, you get that stuff on you, and it ain't ever going to come off. I mean, you've got to be very careful about that because of several accidents that I had, which I learned quickly about it. But with it, I got a book. And I got a brush, a little brush, a little metal hand. I'll tell you how the brush looked. Have you ever, have you ever used white paste, the kind of paste, the pages paste? And you, you unscrew the top, and you lift it off, and there's that little brush hanging down in there? Well, if you can imagine that little brush... Uh, with a metal, little metal handle like, well, this brush was very soft. It was like camel's hair or squirrel tail or something like that. And that was, that was the brush that she used. Now, you also got with this kit a magnifying glass. And that was just a regular magnifying, you know, a little plastic handle that had a little, uh, like a uh, chromium uh, frame on it. And a big, it was about a three-inch mag. And it really worked. You know, you look at stuff and you magnifying glass. You got a kit and you got several little uh, papers, uh, things that uh, you use to, to file your, your findings. Now, how this is done, well, that gets complicated. I will not go into that. But let us say that at the end of a week, messing around with this stuff, I really got good at taking fingerprints. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you can't ever forget it once you've done this. Once you've taken fingerprints, you always think in terms of fingerprints. Now, I, I, uh, I don't know why. I guess you've got to have that kind of head. And uh, so even to this day, when I go into a restaurant, see, I look at a glass, I think, I'd like to take that and dust that and see who's been around lately, you know, dust the thing. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, you, you, have you ever noticed me, Jerry, sometimes with a bemused look on my face? Well, I may be thinking of taking the fingerprints off the doorknob. As simple as that. Although it's difficult to explain that to people. And I say, what do you think? Well, I'm thinking of taking a, my dusting powder out and seeing whether or not there's any fingerprints on the doorknob today. Now, you know, you can't say that out loud to people. They think you're some kind of a nut. But if that's the fact, what you're thinking, you better keep it yourself. That's all i got to say. So, <laughs> nevertheless, this is a kind of a silly show, you know. So, uh, nevertheless, well, after all, life is pretty silly. We might as well be silly, you know. But, uh, nevertheless, I'm dealing with something which is quite serious, and that is the spy syndrome. Man is one of the very few creatures, and I say very few because 
I don't want to make a general statement. You don't like to make general statements, do you, gang? No, of course not. That man is one of the very few creatures who feels an insane desire to know all about the creatures that are walking around with him. Very few cows are observed peeking through the bushes at other cows. Yet this is a common thing with men. Why all the spy movies? Very, very, very strong urge that we have, this voyeuristic urge. Well, I'll tell you, I got caught up in it. And uh, I, I started out by, by going into the bathroom. We had this John in the house, see? And next to the medicine cabinet was this little rack, and on this little rack was a glass, right? Well, I took the glass into, into the bedroom, where my bedroom, see, where I, I closed the door, and I carried it very carefully in a towel, because the instruction book said, when you wish to discover fingerprints on any object, make sure that you do not defile the object with your own fingerprints. So, you must carefully lift it up, making sure that you do not rub it off with the towel. You can lift it up very carefully so and carry it in. And I put it, on, I put it on the bureau, which is the only place I had to work. And at that point, you then spray it with a very fine... It's a, this came in the kit like an atomizer, a very fine spray of powder. It goes like that, see? By God, it's fantastic. All over this glass are these fingerprints, and they, you can really see them. So I take out my magnifying glass, and I'm peering at the fingerprints. And there are about 500 of them all over it. <laughs> very, very interesting. Then they have a thing called a fixative. Now, what is it, a fixative? Well, a fixative is a very, well, it looks like, looks like water. It's a thin solution which comes with another little atomizer, which always part of my kit and go, now you have fixed the fingerprints on this glass, which means that there they are. So you got them now for a while. The fixative is only good for a certain number of days or hours, something like that. But for this minute, they are fixed. Now, I did not have the equipment necessary to do the next step, which is to photograph the fingerprints. Well, I was already saving for that equipment. You photograph, <laughs> yes, indeed. You photograph the fingerprints, and then you enlarge them. And at that point, you, you in studying uh, the various uh, books, which came, they had two books came with. One, How to Take Fingerprints, and the other is The Art of Reading Fingerprints. Now, as you know, if you take, take a look at your finger right now. You notice all those little things running around on the top of it there? Well, there are little things called whorls. There are things called loops, dips. Yeah, they all have these names. See, technical names that we, uh, we uh, expert uh, fingerprint experts know. I don't want to bother you with all these technical names, but there's whorls. There's what they call a truncated whorl. There's what they call an open whorl. There's what they call a loop whorl. Oh, I knew all these phrases. It's a fantastic thing. Well, from that minute on, I began to take fingerprints. Made my, you know, the family that I lived with, which, you know, consisted of my old man, my mother, my kid brother, very, very nervous at times because I was always dusting stuff off and taking away, you know, fingerprints. Well, I continued this for about six or seven months. And I began to collect fingerprints. I had Schwartz's fingerprints. He, see, I would, you, and by the way, part of the test, of the, the, the book was how to get fingerprints. So I would say to Schwartz, uh, like this. This is a typical example. We'd be sitting over in the Red Rooster, and I'd say to Schwartz, uh, I'd say, uh, Schwartz, uh, can I have a drink out of your glass? And uh, he'd say, uh, all right, uh, if you give me a drink out of yours. 
I'd say, okay, Schwartz, and then you very carefully take it. <laughs> he never noticed that I would take out my handkerchief and I'd lift it over. I'd break out the orange. And then, at that point, of course, I had Schwartz's fingerprints. So said, this is very easily done. You must use subtlety. You must uh, use the chicanery at times to get your fingerprints. But a true operative knows that the fingerprint is the one thing that the criminal, the male factor, as they call it in the book, the male factor cannot change. It is his sign for life, and you know who he is. Well, ever since that time, I, I spent a good year taking fingerprints. And uh, probably back home in the basement somewhere, I still have my fingerprint set. I always think now in terms of that. Why, have you noticed many times that uh, when I'm opening a door, I will take out my handkerchief and I will very carefully, uh, because there may be other operatives in the neighborhood that are taking my fingerprints. <laughs> you get very sensitive about this. Well, the voyeurism tendency among people is extremely strong. Now, why are you listening to me? extolling the, the pitfalls and the chicanery that's been part of my life. Why do you want to know about my life? Why do people listen to stories? Why do you insist upon watching Steve McQueen pretend that he's a spy? A very hard question to answer. As a matter of fact, voyeurism is very closely related to the entire enormous industry, which is worldwide, called showbiz. Has ever occurred to you that showbiz is highly refined, constantly evolving, changing, convoluted voyeur? What is art? Why do you have to read about Portnoy? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Right now, there may be eyes, unseen eyes, spying on you. Of course, you're spying on somebody else in your own way. Watching the late TV show. Your fingerprints are everywhere. The spoor you have left behind. Man is constantly trying to do away with the spoor. And yet at the same time, preserve it. You want your individuality, but you don't want it. You want anonymity, and you want fame. The eyes, the unseen eyes in the bushes, constantly peer, observe. And somebody's observing them, someone's observing them. It's an ultimate, eventual, totally convoluted chain of one observing the other. It's called social science. It's called many things. But it ain't called by what it is, voyeurism. <laughs> 